0: Morning. Good, morning. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be with you again. Some new new faces also, which I am to some of you. <laughs> I Understand, it works both ways. So um, today, I had an exceptional personality in the in the uh, world of Bhakti Yoga I passed from the world. A person. Shri Bhakti Sundar Maharaj. Some of you know him personally. Some of you heard of him, and um, he was quite uh, well known in the in the community in, of of Bhakti in our lineage. And so, death is, of course, close to us. We may want to wait till it's closer to take up things like yoga which really are about dealing with the issue of death which is really about dealing with life comprehensively but um who can say they're not close to death they may wait till later but (laughs) it could come this morning so always a sobering kind of a note when friends pass it reminds us very much that again that that life is very much involved with dealing with this problem if you will as it might be perceived i heard a fellow the other day a kind of popularist uh, atheist advocating that religion and and, his estimation spirituality which i differentiate to some extent should be put aside altogether and retired because of all this preoccupation with the afterlife is, is and, and what not gets in the way of dealing with real problems and uh, moral ideas drawn from scriptures and so forth which could be the case with regard to the latter morals are kind of a moving goalpost, and it's certainly a misunderstanding of spirituality and religion not to think otherwise but uh, so far the after life goes <laughs> it's a fairly important issue for human society that's not going to go away too soon and uh, in our estimation in the yogic world preoccupation with that is not a morbid Preoccupation, but it is a preoccupation with plumbing the depths of the meaning and significance of life and drawing from it all that there is to be drawn to really live, in other words, in a yogic worldview, is to voluntarily undergo all for what it would appear to be for all intents and purposes death involves, to voluntarily undergo a giving up of all the things that we cannot keep, which will be taken time and tide, they say, for no man or woman, right? It's interesting that yoga is about such, really. A lot of people probably don't think of it like that. They think of it as something for controlling the body, and it is for controlling the body, or I don't know if controlling the body is the right word for it, but for gaining some mastery over the body rather than the body consisting as it does in one sense of senses for perceiving and for, for moving as much as the body gets the best of us sometimes and we move in places and directions that even with our own intelligence we know it's not in our interest. So some mastery, if you will, then, over the body and the demands that it plays upon us, whoever or whatever, we are of course yoga has a theory about that and it as a system if you will as if as a it's more than a hypothesis naturalism is thought to be a hypothesis based on a theory largely for example theory of evolution with the, a thing becomes a theory rather than a hypothesis in modern terminology anyway when it has enough facts To support it, that it graduates from hypothesis to a theory. So, it's thought to be a theory, and the God idea is thought to be a hypothesis, often, at best. But there are some facts, actually, for the idea of, if you will, downward causation, as the old world would like to teach us, ancient world, consciousness is primary in things secondary it's kind of a common sense idea things are secondary the experience is secondary to that which is the experiencer ourselves it's an old idea it's been around for a long time but the common sense of it if you will has been clouded to some extent in modern society with the improved ability to acquire things And the thought that such improves our life, which they do to some extent, relatively speaking. There's there's no doubt about it. But absolutely, whether they solve the problem, if death is a problem, the answer would be no, it's still about 100%. (laughs) Amongst humans, they're all dying. Ayur-harati, it's a nice poem in the Bhagavad. Ayur-harati vaipum sam ujanastan chayam aso. Ayur harati means you heard of ayurved so uh, it's life science science of medicine in ancient ancient india ayur harati harati means to take away so ayur harati life udyanastan Jayanaso means with the rising and the setting of the sun ayur life as we know it is being taken away this is a huge event uh, we have mm-hmm. the dairy a micro-creamery, if you will, at our ashram <laughs> <laughs> in Northern California. And um, we were delivering milk to one fellow. I happened to be along for the ride. And he, he asked me, he said, Swami, what's going on in the world? Where is it going? The oh, economic crisis and wars and things and whatnot. And sometimes it, you can read the paper or the Internet and it can look pretty ominous And so forth. And I said, well, Mike, I said, we're all dying. (laughs) So it struck a chord with him. (laughs) We don't have to wait for a bigger problem, a bigger issue to deal with. It looms for everyone in this, the the threat of non-existence is we're living with that. Some people find a way to be comfortable with that without worrying about it, perhaps. Whether that's a bluff, I'm not sure. (laughs) because it's a harati, it's a taking away of things, and as much as we are attached to things, it is going to be a problem. As Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita says, sums up the world in one sense from the yogic perspective in two words. He says, dukalayam Ashashvatam. Dukkha means suffering, so he says, like the Buddha, he said before him. world is about suffering as much as the world is about desire. Without desire, there is no life, right? There's no movement. And desire fosters suffering. Desire that is in relation to things that don't endure or that you can't... That they don't endure. They come and they go. They change hands. you are here today and going tomorrow. So Dukalayam, he says, as if his student Arjuna says, but I like it. He says, Dukalayam, the world is Dukalayam. And you can hear Arjuna's thought in the text, but I like it. You say it's miserable, but I like things. And Krishna says, Ashashvatam. He says, Ashashvatam means temporary, temporal. So the implication is, all the worse then. If you like it, <laughs> but you cannot keep it, then, oh, it's even worse. <laughs> so this attachment to things, if you will, that this is what makes that transformation we call death a problem for most people to one extent or another and yoga is about dealing with it really it's it's about as I say people like to think it's, it's about mastering the body or maybe improving it in such a way that it will facilitate my life materially speaking more that would probably beyond the low end of the spectrum of the understanding of yoga but anyway, some overall general sense that it's about doing something with the body and it, it <laughs> and it is, but the body has subtle aspects and more gross aspects what we can see is one thing, and then Yoga world talks about subtle energies within the prana and so forth and mastering these things. So if we look carefully at yoga we see that it is about kind of getting a control of the that which has control of the experiencer things they really are things do things that i identify with with the things called my senses and the thing called my mind they're a little removed the senses and the mind from the things that they attach to but not too much they're a little closer to us we think of them more as not only our things but we think of them as us So there's a kind of identification that we have with matter and it causes us to think that things, our senses for example, and more subtly our mind, the sixth sense, which is a different, it's of a different nature according to the yogic schools, it's it's similar but it has greater capacity to, it's a mediating sense between the senses and the self so it has a likeness to the self but it's still of a different category it's of a category of, of matter but a subtle form of of matter so this also it's also a thing then in the yoga world a thing that we experience other things through but we as the experiencer are not dependent upon it to be an experiencer in fact, it limits our capacity to experience things fully. That's one thing to think about the truth, another thing to, to do it, to live it, to be it. So yoga, anyway, it's about um, it's about this. It's about harnessing the the body, the mind, the psychic and the physical dimensions of our present frame of uh, of experience. And when we speak about mastering these tools, if you will, these instruments, these things, obviously there's a master in there, there's the experience there, the consciousness itself, and that's, of course, what we are. And so yoga is about excavating, mining, if you will, the self, the jewel of the self in the cave of gross and subtle matter where it's somehow found itself, and that's, of course, a long story, in itself, but shouldn't worry too much about that. We should be sure that we're there, and we need to come out. It is like a cave; it's rather dark, and, and after all, it is consciousness that lights the world. Ourself, we give meaning to matter, and we lend ourselves to matter. Then it takes on an apparent life, like the car to the driver, and so forth. So yoga is about, like I said, excavating and mining the. The gem of what we, we are. And it's bright. It's the, in one sense, the light of the world. Jiva Bhuta Mahaba Ho te Jagat. And coming out from underneath the covering of the psychic and the physical covering of the self. This means solving the death problem. That's what it's about. Some of you are familiar with Bhagavad Gita, and Bhagavad Gita is a great discourse on yoga there's a sequel to the book called the Bhagwat Bhagwat Purana it's a very beautiful book it's much longer than the Gita which <laughs> is a tome in itself but uh, to give you some perspective the Gita is one thing that Krishna spoke in about 45 minutes it's a pretty good use of words and time
1: <laughs>
0: timeless and so the, the Bhagwat is about a lot of other things that he did which could be of interest <laughs> and when we say it's about Krishna I mean to say it's very much about life and the meaning and the purpose of life from the yogic perspective and the storyline of it is quite uh, interesting and relevant to any uh, discussion about death and its, its significance in the world in human society in particular there was an emperor that's how the story goes not a king But an emperor means many kings were under his jurisdiction. And by circumstance, he was cursed to die by a a young boy who had some yogic power. It was for a mistaken reason, but once the curse was made, then it wasn't to be withdrawn. So he was cursed to die in seven days. There's a lot of numbers in this book, sevens and... 16s and 108s and they all have some, some significance so seven days he was cursed to die in seven days in one sense it means we all have seven days to live Sunday Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday one of those seven and, uh, and tomorrow will be sure than, than yesterday It would be closer to that. So it is very much preoccupied, as I say, this book with this topic, but in a very positive way. I mean, it it takes a pessimistic look at the world in one sense. I have a younger brother who, you know, I'm kind of like the black sheep of the family. (laughs) They like me, but I don't know what I am about so much sometimes.
1: Um,
0: Anyway, so he came as. You know, I started doing this when I was pretty young, about 20 years old. And that was about a long time ago. I'm 41 this year. So um, those were interesting times. And uh, so like a lot of other people, I left home looking for a bigger kind of universal home. And anyway, they didn't know my whereabouts for quite some time. And my brother came looking for me and heard about me and here and there. And so he went to one ashram where I had been was tracking me down and I but I wasn't there so they spoke with him about what I was preoccupied with and after they were done he said it is as if I had painted a picture with watercolors of my life and everything you said has thrown water on the picture all the colors are fading all that I thought was important and valuable and what I would pursue it's all just washed away from, from what you said so it's kind of pessimistic in a way, but it's a healthy pessimism is perhaps the best, uh, it's is a real optimism. Real happiness can come from addressing the gravity of the situation at hand rather than I- ignoring it. They do say that ignorance is bliss, but it's not a lasting one. <laughs> it's not an enduring bliss or happiness. So, pessimistic outlook. I mean, you're going to die in seven days, it sounds like. Okay, yeah, we know that, but there's a lot to do in the meantime. And uh, There's a fellow also in the in Mahabharata, a book that the Gita is a chapter of, named Yudhisthira, the older brother of Arjun, who's Krishna's student in the Gita. And he was asked, what's the most, in your opinion, amazing thing, fascinating thing about life? He said, the most fascinating thing is that everyone's dying and everyone acts as if they're not.
1: <laughs>
0: he said, I find that very fascinating so we're carrying on in terms of a sense of identity that has no chance of enduring I mean our material makeup our sense of uh, self it may be remembered by some for a while but not forever and so that sounds pretty pessimistic but it doesn't end there it speaks in a, in a pessimistic way, in a sense, as Darwin would about life. It says, Jivo Jivasijivanam. Literally means, one living being is food for another. Mm-hmm. So, we are eating others in some form or, or another to live. So, in order for us to live in terms of our sense of self, we have to be killers, we have to be hunters, and we're being hunted depends which you know shoulder you look over one is there's food on that side the other i'm food from this <laughs> side so it's not a real pleasant <laughs> kind of a place to be but we have a sense that life should be pleasant it should be enduring and happy and we certainly try hard to uh, arrange things such that they will be as enduring as possible we want our mortgage to be at least 30 years long. <laughs> we, long. Enduring, we want it. enduring happiness. Is what we want. We, make, we try to arrange that as, as best as possible. The good news of books like the Bhagavad and the Gita are, are that such thing is possible, but you just have to look at it from a different angle. That's the yogic kind of angle of vision, from a different perspective. And that if you look at it from that perspective, and then you pursue the world from that vantage point you'll get tangible uh results that uh, confirm that turn your hypothesis into a into a theory it's actually worth has merit and uh it's been it's been tested and and of course it's ultimately a subjective first person experience that can't be your enlightenment if you will that can't be confirmed by a third person in a a laboratory or in a controlled experiment but first-person experience has been belittled in the modern society and in the scientific community to a point of absurdity because after all we cannot objectively prove that we exist you can try it but you can't you can't prove objectively that you exist but nobody functions or they well. Well, some people do, I suppose. That's existentialism. But, see, they've thought it out, and they said, you cannot prove, we cannot prove that we exist. But we live as if we do, because we have first-person experience, sensibility, subjective experience that we live. So our whole life is based on a subjective experience that we exist. There's some value to first-person experience. Not everything, you know, we shouldn't wait for everything to be proved in, in a laboratory. We don't, we don't. That's not how we lead our lives, no one does. So to propose that the God idea or the enlightenment idea has to pass that test is not fair. And there is, you know, there's data, I mean, it's subjective, but then we find another person has the same, similar subjective experience. And there's, there's some differences too, that's interesting, but there's some correlation in the experience basically what's happening in the yoga is the theory is that there's a difference between consciousness and matter both its physical and psychic dimensions and the experiment will be that we'll separate consciousness from its psychic and physical dimensions to which it's expressing itself now and see if it endures and that's what hold the whole the controlling of the mind the senses the letting go of things are about aren't they you're separating the experiencer from the things that it erroneously the experiencer thinks by accumulating i'll be more you find the yoga theory is no you are more and if you let go of things you will see that the more that you are you will become bigger you will perceive yourself more what you actually are. So it's a it's a kind of a separating of consciousness to a point. I mean, we are all embodied, so only to a point, right? From things, and then we get so far that we find people living in caves for many years and without any social interaction, without breatharians, and so they're pretty separated from the things, but they're still existing. There's a there's an idea in the sacred text that has some merit, and that is that we exist in the physical waking dimension of consciousness. Then we have existence in a more subtle psychic dimension of consciousness that corresponds with, let's say, the dreaming state at night, when the body stops, for all intents and purposes, but the mind is active, and we're experiencing in the psychic realm. And then there's a state of deep sleep, they have a name for it probably rem or something like that maybe uh, where the mind stops there's no dreaming and so you get a deep sleep and then when you wake up you say oh, i i rested very well so the the idea is that for all intents and purposes the the physical dimension stopped you weren't experiencing through it the the psychic dimension the mind stopped but you continued to exist and how do you know? Because you remember existing. How can you remember something that didn't happen? In other words, you remember, I slept well. It's a vague experience. I remember a contentless experience. That's kind of strange, but uh, it's a thingless kind of experience. It's a pure consciousness, not the thing, but the, that which experiences the thing, not the. Ex- so you experienced anyway your your yourself, independent, the ideas of the mind, independent of the body, and you remembered that. So self realization is sometimes compared to that to give us do we have anything in the in the so called real world that would lead us to believe that we exist independently of the body or the mind, that the consciousness is, is different from, from brain. In mind, this is a an, a an example from the yogic world texts that seeks to say, well, we have this experience every day, every night that we get a good night's sleep. We wake up and we think, I slept well. I rested. I, I was peaceful. Things turned off, and I was peaceful. I thought I was getting the things, but the things were getting me. They were getting the best of me. And they, they they just backed off for a while and it was restful shanti 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 I'm being chased by things but I think that I'm the master of them they're ruling my life so it is a kind of a pessimistic outlook but there's optimism in there as well jivo jiva said jivana I said one living being is food for another but it doesn't stop there like Darwin's theory does and that's it. And it's, he became kind of depressed over the whole thing, too. And now people philosophize about why they shouldn't be depressed. It's okay that we're nothing but molecules. I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, they may be, but I'm not, personally. And of course, those who have thought it out well and truly weighed in on that side, the opposite side, of you will, of the yoga view, are pretty concerned about life having meaning and purpose. They've arrived at the idea that it has no purpose, and that's, they're satisfied with that answer. They need an answer. They have to have an answer. So, this is, this is, in the yoga world, we say that humanity needs an answer, needs to find purpose, because there is a purpose. In human life, this consciousness is rising above, if you will, the conditions in less complex forms of life that don't give you the opportunity to reason they don't give you the opportunity to be, to be pressed for meaning and purpose because they're more pressing on us for food, for mating, and so forth. But when we rise in a kind of a evolution, if of you, of you will, of consciousness into a more complex form of life, like human form of life, the big problem we have is why, not how. They want to tell us, there are no why questions. I mean, some people want, there are no why questions. I heard a debate between an atheist and a theist some time back, and this, was, this guy was from Oxford, and he said, there are no why questions. And I thought if I was there, I would have said, my question is, why do I have to hear this? Listen to this. <laughs> 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 That's absurd. <laughs> there are no why questions. He said there are only how questions, and science answers the how questions, how to do this, and takes the mystery out of life, and, and so forth. So, no, there are big why questions, and they really come to the fore in human form of life. They're very pressing on us and they should be addressed. And yoga is for, for addressing it and not just in a theoretical way because it, it offers us an entire lifestyle that from which we can derive results of experiencing a larger sense of self than the sense of self that we arrived at uh, just by identifying physically and psychically with our emotions and our tastes and our likes and dislikes and so forth. All of which are relative to the to the senses that we have. What might be warm for you might be cold for me. So which is it? Is it warm or cold? That's a very relative call based upon the instruments through which we perceive the temperature in the room. In this example, so yoga has some currency and um, some value. It offers us some purchasing power if we apply ourselves well to that discipline. And the Bhagavad, this book is is about this yoga, and it's oh, ultimately about uh, devotional yoga. The king was told, the emperor was told, in seven days, you have to die. It sounds pessimistic, but he went to the bank of the Ganges, and he said, "Well, okay, it's a zip. Seven days, I'm going to die. I want to know what should one do at the time of death, and what, for that matter, should one do throughout one's life? What's the most valuable way in which one can spend one's time?" So he was a smart emperor. He is an emperor in the book because why? Because an emperor personifies worldliness. I mean, he wasn't even a king, is the point. He was an emperor. The king of kings he was in India. So he personifies as a character one who has everything. And even no matter how many things you have, then in seven days you will die. (laughs) So you have to think about that. This is the idea. So he was wise enough for them to go to a sacred place, sacred environment, to leave the palatial illusion and so forth. And uh, and there so many people came from so many different disciplines of thought, philosophers, spiritualists and so forth, and they were advising him in different ways what he should do. And uh, then out of the forest came a a 16-year-old boy, naked. And um, some children were following him and and they were taunting him, like, look at this guy, he's naked. <laughs> they were throwing stones at him and, st- and things like that. They were taunting him. And he was oblivious to that. And the wise people gathered on the bank of the Ganges, they... Saw him in a different light. They saw the implications of this. They saw he's a 16-year-old boy. Which and there's a reason he was 16. They say that he stayed in the womb for 16 years. He didn't come out. That's an interesting story. But the idea, the idea, of course, is what the idea is that he's 16. He's 16 is, is is a you know everybody here's been 16, so you know what that's like. It's a, it's a pretty wild, you know, ride and it's, a, it's, a, it's an existential crisis, on, ongoing.
1: Hmm?
0: And we need such, to have an existential crisis it, which becomes in a teachable moment to learn in a deep sense about the nature of our existence and, and solve the problem of what we are, who we are, why we are, why you want to be happy these and, and these things are as we say if we come to human life consciousness is rising to an extent above the covering of, of matter to an extent that's greater than in than less complex forms of life so these questions come up what they are the why question or the sense that i that there should be everything should be good uh, i should be happy people should get along there should be equality All these are qualities in the yogic world of the self. So, this idea of the self is coming out and asking about itself. And nature is suddenly aware of itself. There's a component to nature, there's a conscious component and a material component. And in human life, the two have a meeting, a meaningful. Meeting, which is then the consciousness, is existential crisis, is feeling I'm not matter, but it looks like I am. <laughs> and there are constraints to matter that don't work with what I feel like I, I should be, I could be, I am, I want to be. This is kind of like the, again, this is a, very much the old worldview of old times, even in, you know, like philosophers like Plato taught us that things were secondary. Essences were primary, and we were essential. So to begin to feel that, and then try to figure it out: where am I? in all of I mean, we're looking for ourselves all those qualities that uh, that would be that even an even a, a, an atheist would say are noble on, on some plane. Like honesty is there even amongst thieves who want to divide the loot fairly? So the, these things all come from the self. These are natural qualities of the self, an enduring unit of cognizance and, and happiness, ecstasy. So they saw the boy, and they saw he's 16. What would a, a naked 16-year-old boy, especially in our culture, we, you know, if you put it in that perspective, walking into the mall would be a controversial, you know, affair. Um, Sixteen is a time of uncontrolled, uh, very difficult to harness youth. We laugh at the old people, but we don't know that's our future we're laughing at. Unless we can harness our youth, actually, and use it for yoga, then you can live forever. That's the teaching. And a powerful means it is, then, for harnessing youth. It is yoga and bhakti in particular, very powerful and comprehensive method for controlling youth and the senses in general. And they are wild, in particular, in youth. As there he was. So he was at the prime time for being someone that, you you know, you don't really listen to. You don't listen to your 16-year-old daughter about, you know, what life's about. A little bit you do, you know. You learn something (laughs) from from everybody, but (laughs) you've been there and you did that. And and so you, you... you feel that you might have better advice for her than she might have for you, but you'll listen because you love her anyway. Let her, let her, that's part of learning. She has to say it all. And, but there he was, Sukadeva. He was in a different position. And all the sages, they stood up. They understood. He's naked because he's oblivious to the world. And he's being harassed, and he takes no offense from these children and so forth. And they could see on the, from his physiognomy they could understand he was uh, he had his arms extended down to his knees he had long extended eyes like this and a beautiful complexion and beautifully described in the Bhagavad. as he emerges from the forest and all the sages stand up and they can understand he has answered the problem of death already he knows the answer he has no attachment to anything the interesting thing about him is that he had no attachment to anything, represented by his his nakedness, his obliviousness to the to the uh, you know, if somebody calls you a jerk, you know, you get uptight about it, or you you feel, you know, somebody throws something at you, you you know, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't react like that. And in many ways he's described in the sages could understand this is a person who should be listened to, and he's just a boy. And so we can also learn from a boy. That's true, or a girl from youth. We can learn much from youth if we study it carefully. So these—this is the two that the, the emperor is juxtapositioned next to the next to the boy. There's something about youth also that's, that we want to recapture, right? There's a kind of a innocence and an openness there also. That uh, if we could mature and keep it at the same time, that would be good. So. That is the kind of, that's the idea of yoga in a sense. The good part you keep and and, then you add the maturing on as well, the wisdom. You know, in youth we're very susceptible to love and infatuation, but it's not a wise love. So yoga is about keeping the loving part but being wise about it. What's worth loving, where to invest your loving propensity and so forth, that it will bring the most remuneration. So anyway, the 16-year-old boy and the, and the emperor. And the boy would teach the emperor about what to do at the time of death and how to conduct yourself in life in such a way that you will have spent your time most wisely. And the interesting thing about him also, in relation to bhakti, the yoga course, the school lineage that we come in, is that um, being members of the bhakti shop... I consider myself a member too. Uh, so, is that although he had no interest in anything, parinistitopi nairgunye uttamaslokalilaya, he said about himself as he began to teach the king lessons in yoga. That's how he starts. He starts. He says, "Atmasainye shwasatspeetasyaum pramodnidhanam pashnapina pashyati." He said, first of all, you surrounded yourself by so many fallible soldiers. As a king, as an emperor, he had an army, but the army of friends and family who don't hear the call, so to speak, for higher life and, and, uh, and you have to politely distance yourself and love them on a deeper level, something like that. He said these are all you surrounded yourself with friends and kingdom and family and, and all to protect you, and, and it n- won't work. <laughs> it's, it's, no matter how you, you're the emperor, it's not going to work. Atma idhanam He said the Atma tattva, the truth about the self, this is what you have to pursue. He began to teach yoga, but in the context of that, he told something about himself, his background. As it turns out, the story goes that he was in the womb for 16 years, he didn't come out. A little bit symbolic here. That he didn't want to come out because he realized within the womb what the world was in terms of being distracting. And he had a sense of himself already within the womb from previous life, and he didn't want to come out. And so it was a problem for his mother, as you can imagine. So the father of Vyas brought Krishna, and Krishna gave the benediction, if you come out, you won't be distracted. I promise you, come out, and you won't be distracted. So, Krishna's pretty good on his word, so the Sukadev, he's called Sukadev, he came out, and then he left home immediately, he went into the forest, which was another problem then for his mother. <laughs> and for his father who wanted to teach him but what would he teach somebody who knew everything about the world he already knew the essence of what you need to know in a sense that you can't keep anything and so rather than be preoccupied with things and so forth he went to the forest to be preoccupied with himself this forest is symbolic of moving away from the world but the father had something else in mind that is he had bhakti in mind now that's very interesting because leaving go of things is part of bhakti but attaching ourselves to things is also part of bhakti now it gets confusing hmm? <laughs> so the idea is what that there are spiritual things as well as material things we are a spiritual thing in a sense as a unit of consciousness if consciousness in relation to matter causes matter to take shape and be a thing. Why not consciousness turned unto itself takes a shape for expression? After all, art requires a canvas. Otherwise, who can take advantage of it? Right. So, there's an idea in in bhakti, in bhakti yoga, of... Moving away from the forms and names of the world, and moving so deeply within the self, which is an act of sacrifice, if you will, giving up things. You have to sacrifice the things to find the, the substance of of the self. And that sacrifice is kind of the underpinning to love. Any you know, mother or father will, you know, tell you that it's a sacrifice. And it's, it's, a, it's a giving. And at some point, it'll be a calculated giving. I should do it because it's the right thing. Or I I should do it because I'm going to get something from it. Or on a higher level, I should do it because it's the right thing to do. My son, I've got to do it. What can be done? He's like this. But anyway, I love him. So dutifully, there's dutiful love. And then there's a point where love transcends even the sense of duty, which involves some calculation, some head. You understand what I'm saying? It requires a calculation from the head. I should do it because it's the right thing to do. I made that calculation. It's noble, it's high. Whether I get a good result or a bad result, it doesn't matter. I should do it because it's the right thing to do. That's very noble, it's a very high idea. But from the bhakti perspective, it's also a calculative type of love. In other words, the head is still involved. And the idea in bhakti is to really turn off the head, so to speak, and just fully live in heart. No calculation. So there's a point where sacrifice turns into love and there's no calculation whatsoever involved. There's a forgetfulness of the self. Man was walking down the street, house was on fire, child was in the room, and he didn't even, some neighbor he didn't even know, he was on a walk on some other block, and he just ran in and saved the child. And afterwards, all the newspapers are, oh, how did you, how did you, well, I didn't think about it. I just went there. And just to give it a material example, sometimes this kind of thing happens where there's a, forgetful, a self-forgetfulness that constitutes a, a more noble and higher expression of love than a dutiful one. Well, the country needs to be supported, therefore I'm, I'm going, you know. I'll be back soon, you know. I'm going to go and uh, serve the nation and so forth. So this idea of bhakti, when... Self-introspection and self-expression in a spiritual context, in a yoga context, reaches the point, the pitch, where there's no calculation and it's spontaneous. There's then, we call it love, love of God. So this brings God into picture. In other words, for loving, there has to be two things, two opposites, the two have to come together, identity and difference. If there's no other, then love is very abstract. If there's no other, love takes the shape of not exploiting. If I don't do, exploit anybody, I'm a pretty nice guy. But there's more to love than just not taking. you follow me? Exploitation means to take. You know, I just said to live in this world, we have to take. Right? We have to kill to live, so we're going to stop that. Sukadev, the boy, he stopped all that. But he told his story, he said, There's something more to me. What happened was, I left home in the forest, but my father, Vyas, the author of the Bhagavat and all these sacred texts in the Hindu lore, he sent some poems with a woodcutter into the forest in the hopes that by singing these songs while cutting wood, I would hear them. Nice songs, beautiful poetry. Uttam-shloka. Uttam-shloka means this is what the Bhagavad is characterized by. It's a poetic book of 18,000 verses, over 12 cantos, one for each month. And if you read one a month for 12 years, that's a yuga, a Brihaspati yuga. Then you will start to feel separation from Krishna. You start to feel love for what the Bhagavad depicts as the perfect object of love, Yogeshwaram. In the Gita, he's called Yogeshwaram, master of, of yogis, not a, not, not a yogi, but a master of, of yoga teachers, Yogeshwaram. And he personifies love. By his very being, he's saying, yoga is about love. Conquering death is dying to the taking and the killing tendency within us that keeps us in this plane of hunters and hunted, dying to that, so as I said earlier, voluntarily undergoing a death of giving up things rather than waiting for them to be taken and not read the message, the writing on the wall that they don't belong to you. And they're what to speak of belonging to you, they're not you. You're not them. On one level we think we are things, the senses and the minds, thoughts. And another level, further extended, the things outside that we attach ourselves to through our senses are not ours. In fact, we, we think we're them. We think we are a car. We think we're, we are our house. We think we are, you know, whatever. You know, the, that Marlboro guy, you know, <laughs> on the horse, coughing. That, you know, just, so ex- <laughs> this, the advertising exploits this sense. We extend ourselves into things by way of attachment, and they become us. We are... Our attachments, in a material sense, so dying to all this voluntarily is a very courageous idea. It's a great adventure that is yoga. Sugadev so told the king, "This is what you have to come to." This kind of thing, and this has this happened to me. Was, of course, for my, as you know, story goes. He told him uh, that I was in the womb for 16 years. I came out. I went to the forest but then I heard these songs, these poems. The Bhagavad, as I said, it's 18,000 verses of largely poetry, some prose, but largely poetry, which is a beautiful uh, language for conveying meaning about life because, it's a, as I said before, it's a, it's a participatory language. It, it doesn't lend itself to controlling, but it fosters participation. Math is a descriptive language that lends itself to, to some degree of controlling things, and poetry is more for participating, which is how we we'll really understand life, rather than trying to control it. As someone was bringing up the other night, we try to control because we try to, by doing that, we, we preserve a sense of self that nobody really wants me to be or thinks I am, I think I am, or I should be. And so, 18,000 verses of poetry, uttam, shloka, galitam, phalam, uttam rasam, malayam, in the beginning it said like this, that this Bhagwat, this beautiful poetry in which this story is found among others. This is the main story and then other stories branch off of that all to cement the, and, and further support the main thesis which we we're kind of going over today. It says this, this Bhagwat is like a tree. The Vedas are like a tree, all these sacred texts. This one is the ripened fruit. Nikamakobotaro Falam. and it's galitam. It's a fruit the ripe fruit and it's galitam. It's fallen from the tree. In other words, you don't even it's so generous that it's already fallen down. You just come it's there on the ground. You don't have to bhakti, you don't have to it's very user friendly. You don't have to climb to the top to find that one fruit, and maybe it's it rotten, maybe you fall from the branch and so forth. No, in bhakti there's no falling. That's a whole other discussion. It may look like it sometimes, but no, no, there's no falling in bhakti. It's like the floor, the ground of being. We are a unit of devotion in a sense. We give ourselves all the time. That's what we do. Bhakti is is, is in that sense. It's more about. It's our dharma, our nature. Like wetness is the dharma of water. It's the characteristic of the thing. But by nature, we give. So if I, if I fall on the floor, I have to use the floor to get back up. You can't fall below the floor, below the ground. And bhakti has fallen down, so to speak, to us. It comes to us in human society, makes itself so accessible. It's so, it's so human friendly because human life is about all those things that my brother said, well, you know, they're disappearing on the canvas when you speak, like pouring water on the watercolors. Human life is about love and all the things we're interested in, mostly love. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in one sense, knowledge says, that's all false. Right? The things that you're loving are just things. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Stop trying this folly of pursuing love. Be sober, have knowledge, be peaceful. Love is a wild ride. But no, but Bhakti says, wait a minute, this is so close to the human uh, experience. And the human experience, again, is What? is consciousness rising above less complex forms of life. Therefore, it's coming out more than it can in less complex forms of life. So what we're seeing in humanity is the self, something about the self, trying to come out of this straitjacket of humanity's limitations and be all that it can be, and it wants to love. So Bhakti reasons, the Bhagavad reasons, well, are we going to do away with love in the name of enlightenment? No. In fact, If enlightenment is knowledge, then bhakti said, then this must be the highest knowledge, bhakti, devotion. And so it posits something else beyond just the knowledge of the futility, if you will, of material life, the temporal nature of it and so forth, the futility of pursuing, enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure the pessimistic, you know, side of it. It confirms, it's human confirming. So this is the idea of the fruit falling from the tree. It comes right into human society and it's, it's ripe and it's accessible. It's very uh, user-friendly. It, in other words, if I tell you, look, the problem is desire in relation to things. And I have said that. So, stop desiring. See you tomorrow. <laughs> you have to go home and stop desiring. Well, that sounded good for a minute there, but how are we going to do that? Right? We have so many desires. Well, how, what? desire 's desires? life. I'm going to stop living then. What is he talking about? I'm going to give up things. Well, then what? Hmm. So Bhakti says it in a, in a very user-friendly way. It says, you take all the things and use them in a different way rather than to support your false sense of self, you use them in such a way as to support the idea, the yogic idea, the bhakti idea, of the more that you are, that is the potential of the self, of consciousness, to be and to to love. We be, and we can know that we be, and we can know that we be for... Loving—that's what we exist for, for ecstasy. Such it, I don't know, that we, you know, there can be a cog- there can be an existence that's not cognitive, but there can't be a cognitive existence. that doesn't exist. So there could be a non-existence that wasn't aware of itself, but if you're aware of yourself, you have to exist. There might be an awareness of self-existence that wasn't ecstatic, but if you're ecstatic, you have to be aware and you have to exist also. So ananda is the end of the, you know, is the sat, chit, ananda, bhakti is is all about ananda. There's some sat, some chit, we have to take that. Yeah, you exist, and, and, and so. But it's more emphasis on the ananda side. So ananda, it really means, it's confirming the human sense that there's love, that by giving, I grow, I'm more. And so there has to be, in order for this giving to be perpetual, Rather than it being something that's done for a purpose and then retired, right? If I give in order to get knowledge, then I stop giving and I just sit peacefully. That's one thing. But if if bhakti can give mukti, you know what mukti means? Mukti. If bhakti can give mukti, means like enlightenment. If bhakti can give mukti, then what what is bhakti? Mukti doesn't give bhakti. Bhakti gives mukti. is the idea. So. This is what Sukadeva said. I heard these songs and they were different. I'd given up songs and things, everything in the world. But I heard this woodcutter singing these poems and they were different. I became attracted to them. The implications, he's not attracted to anything. <laughs> he was naked. But what are these things then? These songs. And they were songs about Krishna Leela the divine play of the Absolute. And he said, they on their face they look like one thing, but the Sugudeva was a, realized. He knew the difference between matter and self and he was living in his self. He had no attachment to anything, but when he heard these songs, he became attracted. And he followed the woodcutter. And he ended up back at his father's ashram. And there he said, Paraniṣṭhi topi uttama sloka There, idam buta gunohari, why I became attracted? He says, Nirguna, Atmaramas, Chumunayot, Nirgrantapi, Nirgranta, it means, Granta means knot. He had untied the knot of material attachment entirely. And Granta also means book. He was Nirgranta. He was beyond all schooling, all learning. He had untied the knot. That's the sum of knowledge in one sentence. You understand? Untied the knot. It's not whatever letters you have after your name, but if you've understood this point, what is the difference between myself and matter? This is fine use of intelligence, which is a discriminating faculty that we we have to make this kind of discrimination. So he untied the knot. He was finished with learning, but still he took the trouble, if you will, to learn about Krishna, Leela. So he said, Itam butu guna hari, such is the nature of Hari that even people who have given up things become attracted to. So what kind of thing is that? This is another... Dimension altogether and what we're talking about here is a metaphysical yogic worldview that affords us the capacity to realize what we sense in human life life is about. It's about enduring love where there's everything that we could hope for in love. So it the bhakti school of the Bhagwat posits this the two things that love require that are opposites. Identity and difference, oneness and difference. To love, we have to become one, right? If I love you, I say, Jules and I are one. We're on the same page, right? We are one. But we're, it's also different, right? I accept her heart, she accepts my heart, so we are one in a dynamic way. Whatever you want, I want, whatever I want, you want. <laughs> so to become you and I become we. It's a dynamic kind of unity, not a static unity. In other words, if it's real noisy, we can just turn off all the, all the music and we could just play one note, Oh, just one, that's pretty peaceful. But if we could make many notes, all in harmony, that's another thing. So it's kind of, we're ohm going beyond ohm something like that. Hmm. Oh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hari Hare Ram, Hare Ram, 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 Hare Hare. There's a bias in bhakti. Think of that. Bias, that's a problem, right? Attachment causes a bias. But in bhakti we have a bias. Bias for Ram, bias for Krishna, different avatars. And participating in different lila. Leela means divine play. It's different than the, than the work of Karma. When you play and when you work in the realm of karma, then you then you owe. You become indebted. But in Leela there's no such repercussions because it's fueled by this non calculative sense of giving. That's what's making the whole thing go around. So to conclude, Tsukadev explained the Leela of Krishna to the emperor. And said, This is the best way to use your time to hear about Krishna and the Leelas. And it's so nice. He's so attractive. And it's about all the things that we're already attracted to anyway. And he's very charming and it's very profound what can be drawn from it, the poetry at the same time. And in the height of the whole thing, what's found is that in the story, the Leela of Krishna, the divine play, it, it's the harvest moon. Harvest means. Time for gathering the fruits. So Krishna's in the forest. It's the harvest moon, full moon. He plays his flutes and all the milkmaidens hear the note as if it was just played for them, their own name. They heard the mantra. They got their diksha, initiation through his flute sound. Went into their heart and they went into the night to follow that. And they didn't wait for anybody. They didn't wait to see if the neighbor girl heard it did I really hear that?
1: They didn't think like that? Maybe I
0: didn't hear that. It sounded good, but wait a minute. There's a lot. I've got my children to feed. I've got the duties to do. And I've got my reputation. I didn't hear that, no. They didn't know. They didn't think like that. There were a thousand and eight reasons why they shouldn't have gone from a material perspective, but they went without thinking, without calculating. They ran to follow the flute, sound of Krishna. They arrived in the night, the harvest moon. This story, this is like the centerpiece of the whole story of Krishna Lila. It's called Kam Vijay. Very interesting. Kam Vijay. Kam means desire. And Jai means victory. And Vijay means complete, comprehensive victory. So complete victory over desire. But the whole setting is one of desire. <laughs> It's very interesting. And there's a full moon, and there are beautiful girls, and a young boy, and and it's about Kamvi If you want to be a monk, monastic, you should study this story. (laughs) That will be the way to conquer overall desire. This is the point. Because if you look carefully at it, and this is what the Bhagavat recommends, it says, Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya, Bhagavat Bhakti Babati Naishtiki. Don't read this casually. This book, Bhagavata, you have to pay very close attention. Love tends to want to give itself out, but it finds that everybody's not receptive, so it also tends to hide itself, to camouflage itself. So lovers have it their own secret language, which the they communicate with one another, that nobody else really knows what they're talking about. seems like they're saying something else, but there's these nods and moves and winks, and, okay, honey, I'll, I'll do it, <laughs> uh, or whatever. You know. it, it, so it, it has a, it's, tends to hide itself also so, because it won't be appreciated everywhere in public. This is the private life of the Absolute, the heart of the Absolute This this Leela. One might participate, one might get a, get a shape made out of consciousness to play in that, to participate in all, and all the, the, the profound, profundity that underlies it, the foundation of it, the eternity of it, the full face of love and so forth. Oh. So, Ideas. What this is the answer he gave to the emperor. He said, "This is what you should do. You should listen to this and understand and listen from good, right source. Pay close attention. It looks like one thing for a purpose because this realm, not just anybody's going to get in." Krishna says, "What he told. What is that verse? Mayihi bhaktir bhutanam anuttatvaya kalpate. He says, all kinds of people approach me for eternal, to become eternal. He said, eh, that's boring. I give it to them. Hmm? People in different schools of yoga, they want eternally, etern- to live eternally. I give it to them. He said, that's nothing, small thing for me to give. But these milkmaids, they want something else. They want me.
1: <laughs>
0: he said, that's a really different idea. That's attractive to me. Eternity means knowledge. He says, a lot of people approach me for things. I give that in my sleep. That puts me to sleep, things. That's a Vishnu, he's always sleeping, you know, in the Mahavishnu, you know. He's asleep. The world, oh God, he just goes to, <laughs> He goes to sleep. So things, that's very boring to him. And knowledge, he says, oh yeah, big deal. Knowledge about the difference between matter and consciousness. Yeah, okay, a lot of people want that, but they want me. Personally, well, I have to think about that, he said. The kind of love that they have, that will... that they want... I, 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 I'm I, a lover. This is my nature, he says. I'm a connoisseur of love. They wanted love. I'm purchased by that. I, that means Krishna. That's why Krishna looks like... You know, you see Vishnu, people are worshipping Vishnu, and you see Krishna and Radha's chastising him. He's been controlled by that love. In this school, in Bhakti school, love becomes... Superior, in a sense, to the Godhead. Krishna is conquered by the love, so there's a, there's a unity between the finite soul and the infinite, where the infinite takes on a finite-like appearance, that's called leela, for the sake of the intimacy to make it possible. Because if, if you're sitting next to the infinite, it's hard to get intimate. <laughs> it's like you're going to step back from that. So this is Krishna leela, And he said, so you hear about this. And these gopis, they died, these milkmaidens, they died to everything. The call of the world, they heard the flute once they went. They underwent an ego death in the context of bhakti, which is like digging a grave for your ego, putting it in, and then building a temple on top of it. That's like finished. Because why? The ego, our material ego, I don't mean in a Freudian psychological sense, but in a yogic sense, Ego is our identity derived from identification with matter, psychic and physical dimensions. And it's a taking ego. As I said, we are hunters and we're being hunted. So in order to preserve that sense of self, we have to take. We have to kill. So the, it's one thing to stop killing, to try to do that. That's pretty artful. But the way in bhakti, the way you do that, we start to serve. It's the opposite of taking, isn't it? And if you love me, then you'll serve me. You don't just say, I love you. <laughs> well, you show it, you know. Do you ever show it? <laughs> you say you do, but <laughs> so to show it, that is bhakti then, to put your, you know, words into action. So you take the life out of the taking tendency by developing the serving tendency. This is, so this is like an offense that's, you know, the best kind of defense. Therefore, I say it's not just burying the ego, but afterwards building a temple on it, no question of it ever coming up again. And that temple represents another kind of ego, a sense of self derived from identification with truth, with the Absolute, with Krishna, with Bhagwan. And so this is the solution then that the boy offered to the king as to the death problem. Any question? Did you ask if there were any questions? Yeah, I did. Do
1: you have one? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's a little ways back when we were talking about um, memory. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, in what way does the past exist?
0: Mm-hmm. In a very tangible way. The question is, in what way does the past exist? Which is kind of like, it's a feeling you're trying to articulate and wonder about But in a very tangible sense, the past exists in the present. And in a very tangible sense, the future exists in the present also. In other words, we are our past chasing us. How we react to that in the present that is our future. And we should evaluate ourselves, not in terms of our past, that wouldn't be very... Generous, would it? But in our so we might want to say we should evaluate a person in terms of their present. But we look at it in our school that we should evaluate a person in terms of their present, but within the context of that, in terms of their future preoccupation, their ideal, that's very generous. So bhakti is very gen- we, we evaluate a person in terms of their ideal, even though they may not be able to live up to it at the present. If you keep it as your ideal, you will in due course of time. So the past and the future are present. In the present, in a very tangible sense, if you want to talk about physics...
1: Kind of, also. If
0: I didn't go to college. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I suppose there are, there are ways... That, <laughs> talk about past and time are huge huge topics they are addressed in the book the Bhagavad also they are addressed very briefly in the Gita but in some larger in a larger sense in the Bhagavad different types of time and and so forth and within lila within eternity also there is there is time that's subordinate to the whole environment rather than controlling the environment in other words it's time takes a position subordinate to facilitate apparent changing and so forth huh complex but but the past the past the past hmm you want to know does the past exist some in some going on somewhere else in a parallel universe or
1: no no just that if it's things have happened mm-hmm. i think <laughs> you know and so yeah, how much of them do I continue to carry on? But I s- understand what you mean by that it exists in the present. And Are you
0: thinking about your past in this life and things that you can think of? Things in your past that so now you're in the present and how much you memory. should be concerned with them?
1: Yeah, my own, like this, memory. And mm-hmm. well, this one, I'm wondering what you think of this um, thing that I read recently that said, memory creates the illusion of continuity?
0: Uh-huh. And that
1: sort of struck me. i wondering what you think about
0: that. Well, I think that would be kind of a um, neuroscientific kind of a idea to do away with the yogic idea that there is continuity of a self that uh, is in the midst of ever-changing material phenomena around it. So there, there are probably some some thinking like that in, in neuroscience with regard to memory creating a false sense of continuity that doesn't actually exist. But there are all theories like that made by conscious beings who are philosophizing that they aren't really anything. But well, that they're not. Right. There's, there's really no continuity. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so um, that is a um, that is very much in my opinion humble opinion, a result of a culture of things and acquiring and the use of intelligence to um, manipulate matter in such a way as to get things with noble ideas in mind of improving life that um, often don't improve life. Uh, some things improve, but it just depends how you look at them. I mean, you may find science finds a cure to cancer and think it's a great thing, but what what started the cancer? Where did it come from? Was it maybe it was a lifestyle and uh, the fact that we don't you know we eat money instead of food for the most part. You know, food is just a, an economic thing in, in in the country largely. I mean, not as much at Whole Foods, but it is pretty expensive there.
1: <laughs>
0: <But> <laughs> so there's a, there's. Uh, that culture of things and, and the idea that material acquisition and, and, and the uh, manipulation of matter will improve our lives, it, um, in the, the extent that it has or appears to, has caused people to think less of the old worldview that consciousness is primary and things are secondary. And so consciousness starts to get lost and then we start to philosophize about it that it's only memory that preserves the sense of continuity. There is really no continuity. Really, there is nobody in there. Really, and um, I was listening to a fellow philosopher at Berkeley. His name is John Searle. Very famous in the science of mind, and uh, he was being interviewed. And he said that he was pretty convinced that in a thousand years of science, he said about a thousand years of science, that we would be able to demonstrate that that there's no continuity. There's nobody there the lights are on, but there's nobody home, and be free from this religious burden of centuries of thinking that we actually are something, that we actually exist. It was so foreign to me because I thought, if consciousness is left unto itself, it naturally thinks it's more. Where's the burden? The burden <laughs> comes from the other side, oppressing me to think that I'm not more, and that this, oh, you've just been deluded to think that you're more... I think it's the self that informed previous cultures and then try to formulate language about that, which is religious language in different cultures and and so forth, which all is essentially talking about the idea that we're more than what meets the eye. And it's the modern culture of things and whatnot and the miracles that made life better, that, so to speak, that caused people to think less of... Of, uh, of, of consciousness make it secondary. I mean, it wasn't even a subject for a long time. Now it's become a subject. Anyway, so I thought that, and secondly, I thought <laughs> that's a funny one. A thousand years of science. I mean, science is modern science is valuable in many respects, relatively speaking. But it's only been around for 200 years, and its potential or its its um, capacity to know by that means of knowing increases exponentially every day, practically. So we only need a thousand years. I mean, that's a long time. What he was saying is, we don't know anything about consciousness. <laughs> that's what, if anybody could read between the lines, that's what he was saying. We're nowhere near that, understanding consciousness. You can find correlations in the brain. You can press here, and this thought will come. It's a bit of correlation and causality are, are two different They can't just find you in there. You're going to figure it out one of these days. And then they find out that you're not there. It's like looking at the TV and saying, we don't see any viewer in here. There's no viewer in here. Because actually, that's the whole point. I mean, they think, well, where is this force called consciousness? We know the forces. There's electromagnetic forces. There's gravity. We work with these forces, and, and, we, and we, we make things happen. We understand things. So where is this other force? But that force is largely inactive. It's witness it turned the TV on, but then it became quiet. It became a couch potato there. And yoga is meant to wake up that couch potato and turn off the TV <laughs> altogether. And they're looking in the TV and saying, I don't see any viewer in here. So, anyway, that's <laughs> yes, so, That's my thoughts on that. Yes? When you were discussing that bhakti
1: um, comes from not doing things because it's good or a bad result, doing it because it's right, yeah. um, kind of a personal daily struggle is I'm still so trained in um, doing things out of guilt, even doing bhakti or chanting or anything, just kinda like, oh, I didn't do it yesterday, so I have to do it today. Just this kind of training <clears throat> mindset of like you do good things because you you're still a little bit afraid. Um, and I would like to get more in the mindset of doing things out of out of love and do
0: I find that in, in knowledge as like a beginner? Do I find that in... You knowledge? find that in, in... Rupa Goswami said, he used the term, niyamagraha. He said, so He said these things in bhakti shouldn't be done mindlessly. They shouldn't be done because they're... in the ways that you're saying sometimes you find yourself doing. He said that will not be very fruitful. So you're thinking about it and um, you have to think, I guess, in terms of quality, you have to... Yeah, you know, bhakti requires some introspection. It's for thoughtful people who want to go beyond thinking, mm-hmm. so to speak. But it's pretty common, I think, that, that people will, will get involved in the spiritual practice like that and then incorporate things from the ordinary world, which were problems, into their practice. And it takes practice <laughs> to uh, get over that, in good company, so that we can... By good company, good association, we can always be refocused, kind of on its es- es- essentials of the teaching. We tend to, we tend, we'll come in to a spiritual path that talks about essentials in life. You know, the, the, the kind of things we're we're talking about. We'll be attracted to that. We'll be drawn in, and then, then we'll gravitate towards the fringe, which is our our conditioning, hold on to things and and so forth. I mean, spiritual life is really unsettling in, in, in a sense, and it's very gray. It's not like black and white, but we're like, you know, want something to hang on to. So that's why the sadhu, a saintly person is, is valuable because they, they come. Sadhu means saint, but also means to cut. So he or she speaks in a cutting way that cuts away at, at our misconceptions and our attachments and our tendency to gravitate towards the, the fringe of it and make it into a religion rather than an experiential, spiritual adventure and uh, an ego. You know, It can become an ego-enhancing thing rather than an ego-effacing affair if it's not done right. So good company is required. You can you know, attach yourself to the language and the form and the shape and do everything and not change at all. It's, it's also possible. That's why it's gradual, but cooking is gradual also. You got to have the food on the fire if you're going to cook it gradually. So good company—that's like the fire. It kind of unsettles us. Sadhus, you know, they're not—they're not really there. They just kind of pat us on the back and tell us everything's okay. They're trying,
1: <laughs> they're trying
0: to like make us uncomfortable, really, because we've settled into something that's—you know—even in jail, people get comfortable, right? They find a way. So it's problematic. So to, we need to. Kind of shake things up and but to rethink and that our understanding should be challenged in good company and that's good for us. So so we talked for quite a while. I don't want to keep you too long. Thank you very much.